I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 35. I'm here with Father Brad Elliott, and we're going to discuss Marxism and especially its appeal to Christians, as well as to others, but especially to Christians. Father Brad, great to have you here again, Father Brad Elliott, OP. Um, so why don't we begin there, just with a, an open question. That, that It's a mystery enough, but I think understandable. I used to be, or used to call myself a Marxist. I don't think I really understood it. Um, but I, I can see, as a result of that, the appeal to um, non-Christians, and we'll get into that in a second, but why don't we start with the, the great mystery to me is why Christians should be so, find it so appealing. First of all, I mean, there's the, there's the, the very superficial appeal that Marxism would have to anybody, any, any person of good faith who wants to simply help the poor and sees in the conditions of the world around them right now, the imperfections that do exist. Yeah. Anybody who sees the imperfections that do exist in the world uh, the suffering that does exist in the world, the seeming equality, the inequality that does exist in the world, uh, and has a desire, has a desire to, to solve these problems, is going to be attracted to any large-scale narrative or system that claims to, first of all, explain the evil that we see in the world. Yeah. Explain it kind of through these kind of natural causes. And, uh, and then also to offer a solution, to offer a grand solution to these causes, which provides actually not just a solution, but this grand narrative, a grand narrative to like the, the whole, the whole uh, scale of history, the drive of history that's, that's uh, thrusting forward towards ultimately um, <laughs> this happy ending, everybody yeah. living happily ever after in the utopia, right? Yeah. That, there's, a fundamental, there's a fundamental attraction there on a very superficial level. But on a deeper level for a Christian, we are sensitive. We are sensitive to the fight between good and evil around us. We are sensitive to uh, the two poles of good and evil in the world, and we're sensitive to those poles of good and evil running through our own souls. So because of that, we are more inclined to, to lend an ear I would say, to a social, to social theories, to uh, uh, grand narrative visions that place in the world around us very clearly two characters, the good side and the evil side, um, the oppressor and the oppressed. And we as Christians have a, a mandate to free the oppressed, to help the poor, to free those who are suffering, so the grand narrative of the oppressor, the oppressed, no matter how we, we no matter who we put those in, within those groups, no matter how we, we fill those variables, those are, that's very attractive to us. Mm. And that's what Marxism does. It offers this uh, narrative of the oppressor and the oppressed, yeah. uh, an, an, an explanation for it in terms of, so this is the, the drive that creates the suffering in the world today. And then it offers an answer, um, which is a, a utopia yes. in which history is just inevitable. And this is the, 
the thing that I've never really understood the explanation of it. And they don't seem to justify it. No one, it's amazing that people don't push them more on this. But this, yeah. this ultimate destination of a utopia in this world, heaven on earth, in, in, the, in Marxist theory. But it offers that anyway. And there's an inevitability, an inevitability to, the, to the whole thing or a necessity woven into, into history itself. That history itself is is thrusting thrusting us towards this uh, this utopia, uh, and I think that that more than any other feature of Marxism places it in the category of kind of an alternative religion, because yes. utopia is held on to it, it's it's held on to with religious fervor and almost religious zeal, and it, when this when this utopian vision takes over in the imagination, and then we ourselves become main players in this narrative towards the utopia when we fight the evil around us and hasten the revolution, this becomes, uh, this becomes a powerful, powerfully attractive uh, notion to, to Christians who feel, of course, feel very intensely the mandate to help the poor and make the world a better place. Yes. And um, so it is fundamentally opposed to Christianity. I, I, I don't see how anyone can uh, have a place in their heart, if you like. And by that, I mean... The, the deep the place deepest inside them where they make a decision for or against God yeah. we cannot choose for God and for this utopia on earth the, 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 the two are mutually exclusive yet what people try to do is uh, allow for an infusing of one into the other it seems yeah. to me and, and, and ultimately they are incompatible so you in the end you will go one way or the other you will either reject marxism or christianity um it seems to me ultimately in my in my experience with with within the christian intellectual world and the uh, philosophy of the other there are a lot of christians in the 20th century that were dialoguing with marxists a lot of christians who were ex-marxists and a lot of christian theologians uh, and philosophers who would try to have one foot in, one foot out, straddle that border between Christianity and Marxism, and it never works. It never works. They're always either more allegiant, have, have a greater allegiance to their Marxism, or a greater allegiance to their Christianity, or somehow trying to, they have to turn their Christianity into something else. Yes. With Marxism. And, and largely, and this is, not, this is not because of an economic, and there's not anything economic at root. It has to do fundamentally with the Hegelian notion of truth and causality itself. Um, for, for the Marxists, fundamentally, truth, ideas, uh, thinking, are just epiphenomena of social class. Are like, like I would, I would be, I'm certainly a favor of uh, free market economics. A Marxist might respond to me and say, well, of course you are, because you have to think that way. You're simply a, a middle-class American. Dominican, but I was born in middle-class America, so of course you think that way. Ideas themselves, truth themselves, are just epiphenomena of social class, and people are products of their social class. Ideas, thinking itself, is an emergent reality from social structure, and this is what gives this is what gives history its inevitable drive. So there's a there's a number of things that arise from that which have very serious consequences. One, it means that you can't trust a Marxist; they don't because they don't believe in objective truth. They believe it's a, it's a it's a, a something that can be manipulated and distorted and misrepresented in order to pursue their their goals. That that is that is the the logical um, 
consequence of what you've just described. That at, root, at root, this is what makes Marxism very dangerous, because Marxism sees all truth, or ideas themselves, not as true or false, but as useful or unuseful. Useful or unuseful for the party or for, uh, uh, for history's ultimate attaining of the utopia. So ideas themselves are not true or false. They're simply useful or practical or impractical. It's a complete denial of the speculative notion of the philosopher, the speculative notion of truth itself. Uh, even Marx on his tombstone, as this, this famous, the philosophers, it's written on his tombstone, the, the philosopher's role is not to interpret the world, but to change it. So basically the role is not to understand, because ultimately truth is not something that is understood and contemplated for its own sake. It's something that is useful towards pushing history towards the utopia. Except, presumably, this axiomatic truth, that, which is what you've just stated, that there is no truth. So, in other words, there, are, there is this enlightened elite who understand this, who grasp this, and nobody else does. Anyone who, who tries to dismantle it rationally or logically is simply a product of their culture, yeah. of their sex, of their gender, their, their race, or whatever it is. Or economic status. Or economic status. I mean, today we, we talk as much about race and uh, culture, so I'm white male, so that's effect I cannot simply join in that debate, that's, uh, unless I'm in favor, then, I'm, then that's fine, then I'm, yeah. I'm enlightened. But this is ultimately why, why Marxists, I mean, I, I, multiple, multiple occasions I've had the, the, the privilege, I'll say, the, the privilege of debating very intelligent Marxists or being in conversation with very intelligent Marxists. And there's always something, there's something about the conversation where it's, like, uh, uh, it's, almost, there, it's a type of ideological possession that takes over, where the, the type of ideological possession that, uh, we're not seeking truth together. We're really not seeking truth because truth itself is only true for a Marxist insofar as it thrusts even the conversation or all history itself towards this utopia. And because it's, this is axiomatic, in other words, it's, it's, it's a leap of faith with a little f that, that is just grasped. There is, this is not at its first motion reason that's right. It's just a, an in, a leap that is grasped and then everything else comes out of this um, and it means really that there's no authentic engagement as you say because you're getting right down to the deepest level at, yes. at, and and furthermore it means that the, the Marxist Christian really sees Christianity as a tool in which to draw people to Marxism Mm -hmm. And you cannot have it. You cannot have it the other way round. You can't be a Christian who engages with Marxism. It, ultimately, that's what you will become: anti-Christian. Ultimately, a lot of people will say, "Well, if that's the case, you know, they, they, David, they'll say, if this is the case, well, then it's clearly Marxism is 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 in opposition to Christianity." But for a lot of people, this is precisely why, for a lot of Christians, why Marxism is attractive, because. They think they think that that is actually uh, what what uh, they think that what Marxism provides is this is the narrative structure that all Christianity is falling into, and Christianity is just one more player in that narrative. And and I imagine there's a whole amongst Christian Marxists <laughs> a category 
that, that a large number, basically it means they're, tr they're in a transitory phase. <laughs> they, get, they, they have to be going one direction or another. Either that or they're just not actually really working out with their position. There's a, there's a fundamental irrationality within that that they're just not, not addressing. It's not fully worked out. And in my experience, talking with a lot of very intelligent Marxists, you can tell they're still, even in dialogue, they're working out their own positions. They're constantly working it out there because it's, they deep down feel this tension, but they simply have, or there's a willful blindness to it or an inability to see this fundamental tension. Now, the, pope, the early popes of, of the Catholic uh, social teaching uh, movement starting in the late, late 19th century saw this very clearly. Uh, Marxism and socialism uh, were clearly seen by you know, Leo the Thirteenth, uh, Pius the Eleventh. These were clearly seen as quasi-alternative religions. Um, it's an alternative uh, view of man, an alternative view of man's relationship to the world around him, and his relationship to history itself. Um, our hope is not here. The Pope's put on this. Our hope is ultimately not uh, on this side of of heaven. Hope is in heaven in the end. Mm. And what this, what, this world, what this world provides us with is, um, yeah, yes, this is, this, is the, this is the arena in which we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But this world is ultimately not the arena that we have to remake into a heavenly utopia. That entirely, uh, entirely switches the onus of Christian hope of Christian hope, what it means, what it is, is a death of real Christian hope, and it turns into a mere natural hope, a, a, a hope that is kind of just uh, inspired by kind of the sensitive imaginations that we have towards an earthly utopia. Uh, it's a counterfeit hope. Mm. And the, the, some other sinister aspects um, are that um, it has this view of mankind, which I think comes from Hegel, uh, as a sort of collective organism mm -hmm. uh, in which we are just cells um, and dispensable in the way that we discard skin cells over, over time mm -hmm. that, um, or hair, hair or something like that. Um, and so whilst it claims to have the, man, the interest of mankind at heart, um, it doesn't have the interests of people, of the person at heart. They are dispensable. And mm -hmm. um, again, those who don't face this, <coughs> many many Marxists don't I mean can see that they don't want to justify the, um, the 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 end, the means by the end. Yeah. Um, but it, it is again, it is an ines inescapable uh, conclusion of the stance they are taking, and so inevitably you move towards this gradual encroachment of allowing for restrictions of freedom, um, forcing people against their will to do things because we know better and it's for the greater good. It's for the, and it's this confusion of, of misunderstanding for Christians of the common good, uh, which we, we've, we, we'll get into a sort of deeper discussion of this, that the common good is not the same as, 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 the, as, what, as what Marxists have at all. But this confusion, for Christians allows them down this road that ultimately they want to tell you what to do. There is this, and actually for the greater good, the person is dispensable in some way. 
even if they don't believe that they can, they, they you, you know, that not everyone's a Stalin who wants to kill millions, but they are prepared to restrict personal freedom um, and see sacrifices of personal freedom at the very least. Um, you see this happening um, even for, um, should we say, well-intentioned Christian Marxists. And this is, this is also why, I think, to get back to our original question, Marxism tends to be uh, very attractive to Christians um, because not, nothing, unites, nothing unites more than a common enemy. Nothing unites more than a common enemy. And for many Christians in the modern world, particularly in the United States, Christians and Catholics in particular, um, we're sensitive to the evils of consumerism, the evils of individualistic consumerism. And Marxism provides a narrative, or at least a, a, uh, it provides uh, a critique of modern individualism. What, what Christians see as modern individualism or an evil in, of individualism, it pro provides a, a, very, uh, a very potent critique of that and language which appears on the surface to exalt the common good, to exalt the common good, to exalt the brotherhood of, uh, of all humanity, and to put in perspective a, a false notion of human freedom. Uh, freedom of indifference, the freedom simply for individuals to do whatever they want. Um, Christians, rightfully so, rightfully so, are suspicious of many contemporary notions of freedom, which is simply freedom from rules, freedom to do whatever mm -hmm. I want, not freedom for the good, but freedom to do whatever I want. Christians rightfully uh, see that as uh, see that as a, as a a true uh, contraction of what freedom really is. So they're susceptible then to the to the Marxist notion that well, ultimately individual freedom has to be individual freedom has to be curtailed for the sake of the common good, right? For the sake of the collective. Now the the Marxist the Marxist notion of the common good is merely a collective. The Marxist notion of the common good is not truly a common good that is shared and enjoyed by all, but is a common good which is merely the sum total of individual parts. Yeah. And if an individual, if any one individual within that sum total is, according to the Marxist paradigm, taking away from the good or has ideas that are contrary to the good that the experts want to, want to impose upon us, then that individual has to be sacrificed for the sake of the collective. And again, many Christians, I think, and especially distributors that I've come across, have this misunderstanding of the the of what human the, of what human freedom is so they reject the idea that it's as you say that it's purely self-indulgence yeah. lack of constraint they, they, they understand that they see there's a problem with that but and that you need it needs to be directed towards an end mm -hmm. but the argument they make is that um, they forget that nevertheless there should be free will that free will ca cannot be compelled <laughs> and that there are two components to freedom it's you're not switching one for the other you're not switching the end for the lack of constraint but ultimately you have both there that it's not love unless it's made freely even adam and eve had the freedom to reject god's love and he it, he surely knew what they were going to do <laughs> but so and if God gives us that freedom, then we have no right to restrict other people's. But there is this tendency to think, well, 
we've got this definition of freedom, which is freedom for the good. Yeah. Now that we know what the good is, we can force people to do it. Uh, yes. and, and the Marxists jump right on this and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's right. We're the enlightened people. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, nothing, nothing unites like a common enemy. So a lot of Christians think that they have, a, have an ally in Marxism because they see kind of following this kind of the, the McIntyrean uh, reasoning of um, kind of that, the moral, moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre, that modern liberalism has a, a abandoned any, any ultimate notion of the good for man. So there's no notion of the good for man that we can all unite around uh, that gives our, even our exercise of virtue, any kind of intelligibility. And what Marxists seem to provide is a picture of the ultimate good that all humanity will be united around. And it seems to be an alternative picture to what Christians see to be a vapid, vain, consumerist, individualist culture. The danger here, the danger here is that the Marxist good for man is precisely not man's ultimate salvation. It is a utopia. It is a, it is a worldly material utopia that any effort, any effort to, to bring about that worldly utopia, you will have to bring about, and Marx understood this, a new man, a new man, a complete remaking of human nature. And ultimately after the revolution, after, the, after this clash between the rich and the poor, this clash between the oppressors and the oppressed, there will emerge this new Marxist socialist man. An almost new anthropology will emerge where everybody will be purely altruistic and share goods with everyone. Uh, This is very dangerous. This is very dangerous because yes, our salvation does come about through the body of Christ, the church. And we do rightfully say we are cells within the body of Christ. This is all true. This is why this this language is attractive for Christians. But the cells all live with that same life that is in the body. The cells all participate in that life, which is the body. That is the key principle. It's participation, as as a philosopher talks about it. The common good is not a bonum alienum, as uh, Marshall would say, or as as, uh, Charles Duconic rightfully pointed out in his critique of Marxism uh, and his defense of the common good. The common good is not a bonum alienum for the individual or another good, a good that somehow the individual is, is alienated from and merely serves. No, the, the, the individual participates in the common good. And, when the, and he, the, the individual flourishes when he's contributed as a person. And yes, yeah. yeah. Um, now this, see, this, this idea, as, you, as you've spelt it out, I, I suspect that many people who subscribe, you know, who are voting for Bernie Sanders probably, um, <laughs> and, and so therefore assenting to a lot of this sort of Marxist yeah. theory, even though they, they will call themselves democratic socialists yeah. perhaps, um, they, they probably don't realise that the whole theory rests upon what is the wackiest new agey idea of what happens to them. I mean, there's no basis to this. There's no, there's no revelation, <laughs> apart from Marx's you know, imagine, distorted imagination, or Hegel's, or whoever it is. It, 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 there's no reason to take this up, other than just arbitrarily saying this is going to happen. Yet this, this goal is the, is the whole justification for the next sort of great evil 
I think, of this concept of class warfare, which began yes. as economic class war. In other words, that we've got, we need this to give history a push. That's this right. is our destiny. And we, and we, all we, us, the enlightened, we have to stimulate conflict. That's exactly and Suffering, therefore, in order to see the ultimate end, you know, which, which is this utopia, which nobody really questions. Nobody and you think, surely, if they knew that this is the basis of the theory, they'd realize how stupid it is. But they don't. It's, this is what's amazing to me. And this, you're right. You're absolutely right, David. It's just the heart of why it can be it's so dangerous for us now politically, because Marxism, Marxism has provided the world with a very simple, actually primitive narrative. It's primitive. This is not the, the frontal cortex thinking. This is primitive brain yeah. thinking, where you have an oppressed and an oppressor that are fighting, and this is the ultimate root narrative that's driving history forward. So everywhere we look in history, we have to find. We must find some oppressor and some oppressed. And if we don't see it, then we're just not looking hard enough. If we don't see it, we have to, or we have to create it. Um, sometimes it's economic. Sometimes it's the rich and the poor. Sometimes it's sex. It's men and women. Yeah. And it's this narrative. Sometimes it's race. It's the blacks versus the whites or whatever it might be. And wherever we find this dichotomy or a distinction between one group and another, we have to constantly amplify or continue to throw fuel on this conflict between them. We can't accept distinction within, within the human species or within the world. We can't accept these hierarchies. We have to constantly amplify this, the fights between them and the tension between them. This is why wherever you see uh, nowadays, you see this constant amplification of, uh, of the fight between men and women, the fight between uh, um, one race and another. This is this is Marxist. This is Marxist. And the more, the more, David, the more they can they can abstract these categories to yeah. make them larger and larger, the more powerful the narrative is. The more that the one who is oppressed can be abstracted out larger and larger. The more the oppressor can be abstracted out larger and larger, the more do we have a powerful force that will drive history towards the revolution. Now, and there's, there's a couple of things from my own experience here. When I used to call myself a, a Marxist, um, and again, I, I really didn't understand what it was. You know, I was I was at the level of having the the, the poster of Che Guevara on the on the bedroom, okay. <laughs> bedroom wall. Is that, that I was that sort of Marxist? Okay, but um, but you know, I used to get the literature sent, you know, to uh, to my student address and all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, first of all, uh, this is when I was unha an unhappy, you know, as I had suffered from teenage angst and everyone said, oh, yes, you know, that, that's, that's right, it is tough. And, but this feeds into, at a personal level, that there's two ways of dealing with resentment about your situation, which is what this is, that, that, uh, and unhappiness. One is, is Christian. Yes. Um, or there were for me anyway. One is Christianity, which ultimately, thank goodness, thank God, is is the one that I chose. The other one is when people say, "Yes, life is tough. It is difficult. You're right." Um, yeah. And this tells each person, apart from the whoever's unfortunate enough to be the the, the white. I mean, at the moment, it seems to be the white male. But whoever's the you know the Beto O'Rourke who has to apologise for being who he is. Apart yeah. from him, everybody else can claim to be 
justified in their resentments and their unhappiness. And misery likes company. Misery likes most people, or many people, should we say, would rather be right than happy. Um, and, <laughs> and Marxism will tell you this. It, 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 it's a brilliant scheme for not only appealing to our utopian ideas, but it does so by telling me that I'm right in my resentment and my unhappiness at the, at the, most, at the deepest personal level. It, it's sort of psychologically so appealing. I don't have to face my difficulties. It's all your fault. That's what I want to know. The key, but that's the key. So it, it takes all of, all of our individual angsts and tells us that it's clearly someone else's fault. Yeah. You are the oppressed. It is so easy for human nature, for fallen human nature, to play the role of the victim. Yeah. There's something in our nature which we need to play the role of the victim uh, in order to, in order to, <laughs> to, to gain, in order to excuse ourselves from the responsibility of personal, uh, of personal repentance, personal reform. Uh, personal ownership and, and uh, over, our, over our own lives, which is actually the root of virtue. The root of real Christian virtue is finally, regardless of our external situation, taking personal ownership of our own lives. And that ultimately is the root of real human freedom. Yes. And so <clears throat> the, the, this is why inevitably there is a, it, it, it involves a restriction in freedom, as we said, and you see this creeping into, uh, well, clearly Christian Marxist, Marxist Christians, that you see this coming into their advocacy of socialism. The government takes the place of uh, the God, effectively, the state becomes God, God on earth. Um, the state, the state itself, the, the modern, yeah. the technological superstate becomes the the personification of the common good. So and in Marxist in Marxist language, almost like the state and the common good are synonymous, because the state the state is that thing which is uh, the personification of the community. Yes, and sometimes they will then the Christians will then do the same with the church that they they treat it as a sort of um, quasi state and don't act and um so church ownership they view it in this this way and ultimately the whole thing uh, will just either will collapse and you move towards christianity or as you say um if they have any integrity they will cease to be christians and become uh marxist it's interesting i listened to a podcast of a guy who started off as a um, a uh, Protestant Christian, I think a Baptist, okay. he became interested in uh, liberation theology. He moved to the Bay Area, uh, then became interested, actually went down to Venezuela and uh, wow. Central America. I mean, this was before it got very bad. So this was in the heyday of Chavez, when it looked like you know they were creating you know the new... Um, some socialist uh, utopia, Didn't last um, and, but then ultimately left Christianity yep. and became an, a, a Marxist. Mm-hmm. Um, then he started to see and had some sense of uh, reason driving him. He began to see what was going on in Venezuela, and within the last year, has abandoned um, all the, the Marxism. 
uh, hasn't been able to make the step back to Christianity, but is is now proclaiming the. So he knows deeply what's going on. He went down to poet. He was paid by the Venezuelan state to attend poetry readings in Caracas because he was just a, a useful advocate, you know, of promoting um, these ideals. And so he's almost gone full circle. But what he's describing is just what what you you have talked about. This this is not. Um, a detached sort of examination of truth in which, like the philosophy, he's looking at this and picking... This is, this is a movement of the heart, deep in the person, moving from one place to the next. And then using reason, he was a journalist, using reason to justify what goes on deep inside. It's, uh, all of that just follows. And because the, the leap of faith with a little F, the movement of the heart is axiomatic it's the first step in the the construction of this logic everything can just follow on from it and that's what what, what he did skillfully well in my experience that's a wonderful story of your, your friend there i mean I, that's not un, that's not uncommon it makes perfect sense that a, a, a christian flirting with marxism would go full circle like this in my experience also when i have when i have encountered christian marxists people who claim to be catholic and marxists or christian and marxists Christianity is always a means to a Marxist end. In that, they what the, what they would see is they would see in Christianity. They may not articulate this or even admit it to themselves, but they're using Christianity or Catholicism to ultimately reach a Marxist conclusion. And then once they realize that Christianity or Catholicism in particular is not an effective means to reach that end. What do they what do they abandon? They simply abandon their Christianity. They simply abandon the Catholicism of Christianity because it it ceases to be an effective means to bring about that Marxist utopia. Because it indeed it is. It's a, Christianity is not can never be used as a means to a Marxist end. It can't. Honest Marxists see this. Uh, Marx himself saw this clearly. The, all the early Marxists saw this clearly. All the Marxists in the early twentieth century saw this clearly until. Um, uh, mid mid twentieth century, we started to we started to flirt with this Catholic and Christian Marxist dialogue. It simply doesn't work. John Paul II saw right through it. Yeah. Wow. He cut it out. This the Catholic Marxist dialogue he saw right through it. Um, early, I've seen this in, in in examinations of conscience that were put out from the Catholic Church in the nineteen forties and fifties. This is true, David. Examinations of have under the first commandment. <laughs> the statement, have I joined the Communist Party? It's <laughs> <laughs> to be considered that the want a person to confess because the late 19th century and early 20th century popes saw this very clearly that Marxism, Marxism uh, provides a counterfeit false religion. Yeah. The Christian cannot, the Christian cannot uh, engage in it. Can they can they study? Can a Christian study Karl Marx? Yes, absolutely. I've read a lot of Karl Marx myself. Can a Christian um, appreciate Karl Marx as a social scientist? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. A lot of, of great Christians have. Uh, a Christian himself cannot flirt with these kind of utopian social socialist ideas. Um, ultimately, it will they'll they'll adopt almost inevitably adopt this under this notion of Hegelian Hegelian causality throughout history, which is foreign to the, to the Christian notion of freedom. Yeah. 
So I just want to come back uh, to this uh, idea of what I think they, they tend to call intersectionality today, but this, um, the politics of today deals so much with uh, race, gender, uh, sexuality, whether you're gay, lesbian, transgender. Um, and, but this is, uh, there's none of this in Marx's writings, as far as I know. It's all economic, and so, but this is just a modern manifestation of, of the same thing, and an extension of it, as, as far as I'm aware. What they call identity politics, and I think that's a good, that's a good, uh, uh, that's a good name for it, identity politics, because I think you're right, David, it's the same extension into multiple different realms of the, uh, this dichotomy between the oppressor and the oppressed. And the conflict between oppressor and oppressed is the engine that drives history forward. Wherever we see distinction, we have to continually fan the flames of conflict. And uh, basically, you know, fan the, fan the flames of, of uh, this class warfare, whether it's um, between sexual groups. And sometimes we even invent new sexual groups. <laughs> to, yes. We some, we'll invent new sexual groups uh, in order to create this kind of conflict that's going to drive forward the liberation of the oppressed. And, but, and this really, uh, on the political level, when de dealing with this today, so people may think that Marxism isn't something that really exists, but actually on the left today, what we see arises from Marxist theory. And there are a couple of things that <clears throat> always strike me. One, you very often hear people say, well, it's the same on both sides. You know, why, why is there such sort of conflict today? Everything's polarized. It's the same on both sides. Now, my response to that is it isn't the same on both sides at all. That mm -hmm. while there are dishonest people and self-serving people uh, on both sides, that, that's human nature. Only on the left is there an actual ideology which espouses deception and conflict as part of its ideology. And, and furthermore, they lie about it because they don't believe in objective truth. As you say, truth is a, um, is a commodity that is to be manipulated and used and is a means to an end, which only they see. And what I see on the left right now, what I see on the left is even if individual leftists in, in the United States, individual leftists do believe in objective truth, Yes. Leftism generally is a descendant of the Marxist notion that, that truth is that which is useful. So the means are justified by the end. Uh, the end. The end justifies the means. The end ultimately even justifies the truth. And so with that paradigm in mind, the whole idea of honesty doesn't even have any meaning. The whole idea of political honesty, yeah. uh, sacrificing one's self for the truth whatever that might be, loses its meaning. And, and those on the left, therefore, who are honest, are not seeking conflict. They, they, they honestly want to see harmony and the end of suffering. If they're going about trying to um, relieve these things that they perceive through the vehicle of leftist politics, they are, in fact, the useful idiots, I would say, of... Uh, the, the cynic, they're, they're being cynically manipulated by this leftist vision. By the leftist rhetoric of helping yeah. the poor. By the rhetoric of helping the poor. The facade, the thin mask 
of, of helping the poor, which there are a lot of useful people out there. I will say the useful uninformed who spend, and a lot of Christians and Catholics are in this boat who are susceptible to this rhetoric. They see the rhetoric of helping the poor, the rhetoric of relieving the world of conflict as something they want to jump on, jump on board with. They simply don't see, they don't see the underlying logic. And that takes us to the, the other great sort of modern uh, or the great issue of today, which you, I, you did, would talk where we were talking earlier, you called the perfect storm for, for left. And this is the environment. Mm -hmm. um, so how does this feed into uh, leftist uh, propaganda? Well, first of all, I will say, before we talk about environmentalism and the contemporary environmental issues, I am abstracting right now from any kind of uh, truth or falsehood about environmental crises, whether or not the, the stuff is true or not, you know, whether or not what the experts tell us about the environment is true or not, what I see going on in the contemporary environmental extremism is another version of the Hegelian Marxist dialectic between oppressor and oppressed, uh, which, which kind of possesses people's minds like a religion. Yet, I, I call this, and I said even earlier, I, I intend the pun, this is pun intended, it's the perfect storm for the Marxists. It's the perfect storm for the, the Marxist narrative of conflict driving history forward. Because you have the same uh, cleavage between a oppressor and oppressed, but now you have abstracted these categories out almost to the nth degree. You've abstracted these categories out as much as you possibly can. That which is oppressed is now all of nature. All of nature is that which is oppressed, and we need to liberate all of nature from who? This absolutely abstract oppressor. It's not just one class anymore. It's not just one race or one sexuality. It's all of humanity. All of humanity is now the oppressor. All of nature is the oppressed. And because now these categories of oppressor or oppressed are abstracted out, to an almost impossible degree, we need an almost impossibly large global government to dictate to us how we're going to solve these problems. And it's the Hegelian superstate, the Hegelian technocratic modern superstate, which knows all and is all benevolent, which is completely religious. It's a religious notion. Yeah. All is all benevolent is going to tell us what to do to bring in the utopia. Now, again, I'll say, regardless of whether or not environmental crises are real or not, this is the logic, this is kind of the engine that I see has taken over a lot of the modern American left. This religion of environmentalism is, I think, fundamentally Marxist. Uh, and, um, yeah, as you say, regardless of the science, uh, I, I'm going to speak to that a little bit in a second, um, but th th what, what would you say that if someone said, well, what if it's true? Isn't that the only answer? Isn't that, don't we need that world government? Uh, isn't that, but I, I, and I'm thinking here of what you were saying is that there is this mistrust mm -hmm. of what the common good really is, which is the human person flourishing. So even if this is true, mm -hmm. the, the, and man is to blame. And man is to blame. Man is to blame. Um, the, the faithful Christian says that the, the flourishing of the human person as a person in relation to God and his fellows is the optimal way of the common good being realized and the environment being saved. We can't say exactly what that means, 
But that means, therefore, that the gospel is the answer to the environment. It's not the United Nations or world government. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Ultimately, if, if human beings are at fault, then human beings must repent and change and, 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 go and, and return to the gospel so that human beings can finally have the gift of prudence to use the environment wisely and to be proper stewards of our own environment rather than simply hand, hand, our, hand our, our freedom and our autonomy of life over Just, I just want to say, I think you might have put your hand over a microphone or something for a second. Really? Okay. Well, you suddenly muffled. Just oh, really? Okay, sorry, maybe I did. Yeah. So you, you were just saying, rather than handing your freedom over. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, it was, it, the, the environmental solution will come about through individual personal conversion on a, on a massive scale through all of humanity, basically turning turning back to, to the gospel. And it, it, won't, it won't come through handing our own freedom and personal autonomy uh, and national sovereignty over to the hands of an impersonal group of experts or autocrats who are supposedly going to be our saviors. That does not happen. Jesus Christ is our savior. Yeah, and, and, and so let's assume that it's true, that, that there is this threat, and I'll have something to say on that in a second. But even if it is, um, that is the answer. And so someone who says, well, that's, we're never going to convert the world. You say, but you're, su you're suggesting an alternative, which is even worse as a possibility, which is this world government. When has government um, ever been able to um, organize this well? When has it ever done this properly in a way that the human being flourishes? Even if they save the world, they'll destroy man. Mm -hmm. which is not saving the world unless you unless you don't believe that man is part of the world or is part of nature why i call the environmental crises the perfect storm for the marxists yes it's the perfect storm because finally we have a crisis that's large enough that to merit handing everyone's individual freedom over to the super state finally we have a crisis that's large enough universal enough global enough uh and eminent enough, we have 12 years, David, 12 years. <laughs> that we, we have to be, this is so important that all of the, the values that we've had in the past, the values of personal freedom, uh, the values of, uh, of community, the values of family, uh, uh, of reproductive freedom. I mean, goodness, having, having as many children as you want, we have to hand those freedoms over to the government because this crisis is eminent and it's so big. Yes. Um, I, I actually have... Um, People might say, well, how can we trust the science? What can we do? I, I can't get in and read every paper. I can't. Um, so I would say to those who are looking at, at science, there's, there's, a, there's a number of things that I do. I, the one is ask yourself to, to, the, to the degree that science is a measure of truth. That's the other great thing that they do is they use science as a justification. It's unimpeachable as a source of truth. It, mm -hmm. This is science. It has to be true. Um, and... Uh, so, first of all, that isn't the case. Science isn't neutral. Um, and especially when you have anything that's based on statistical analyses, or <laughs> what you have is that they, or uh, computer algorithms, yeah. always there are assumptions made by the scientists which direct that. 
-hmm. And so, in other words, it, it reflects the worldview of the scientist. That's, right. uh, um, that's not always bad, but when that science is being used uh, uh, to advocate for the restriction of things which are anti-Christian, such as the personal freedom, then I think we have, I, I would tend to disregard the science. Uh, because, because if science is authentically a search for truth, it cannot be against the values that we know are objectively true, like personal freedom. It properly understood, properly understood. Uh, so when, when it's being used to advocate for sort of a political system, I would be, first of all, either you, you mistrust the application of it, or it's, you say, well, then I mistrust the science. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not prepared to, to accept that because science can be twisted. The other thing is, at a very simple level, um, to the degree that science is able to ascertain truth, that it, it's limited in what it can do, Mm -hmm. um, by its own measure, um, there is a scientific method in which you observe data, you come up with a, 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 a proposed uh, hypothesis which explains the data, and then in order for the hypothesis to be, that is not proving it to be true. You then have to um, predict something which is previously unpredictable it makes the trans and then you observe it and it makes the transition to theorem if also this can be repeated in other words it's replicable mm -hmm. now in, in so much of the science that is used by the left and this refers to social sciences even population medicine which yeah. comes into this um, environmental science does not actually even follow the fundamental basics of the scientific method. And in order to sidestep that argument, then they say, well, this is post-normal science. In other words, this is science, which we're twisting what the meaning of the word is to suit what we want it to be. Yeah. Now, David, you've had a scientific background. Yes. I studied physics. Well, material science, physics of solids at Oxford. Yeah. You have much more experience in this realm than I do. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to call it count it one way or the other in science. But one thing that I will, will say is that in a book uh, by Paul Johnson, it's a very good book. Uh, Paul Johnson, a popular historian, does popular yes. history. It's a book called Intellectuals. It's interesting. He has, a, he has an interesting commentary in the beginning of the book on what the intellectual is in the postmodern world. And uh, uh, in the medieval world, he says, uh, the clergy filled a particular function in society. The clergy, the clergy were the impeachable voices of authority that uh, were unquestioned. But then, throughout the Renaissance and into the modern era, throughout the Enlightenment, we began to question that authority. And now, we began to question. Well, we we began to question that authority, and 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 realize that the clergy were not impeachable. Now, I'm part of the clergy. I understand this because the clergy are not impeachable. <laughs> but then he said that human nature hasn't changed. Human nature fundamentally hasn't changed. We have this need in our psyche to have an authority. We need an authority to be impeachable, and we need an authority to trust. Uh, unimpeachable, you mean? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, unimpeachable. Yeah. We need that uh, Trump is impeachable. Oh, no, 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 we don't go there on that one. <laughs> we need an unimpeachable authority. And his, his, his thesis was that in the modern world, the expert fills that role. 
And I think it's a, I think it's a brilliant thesis yeah. that the expert fills that role and is the unimpeachable authority. Yeah. Um, that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. But, but so that's my, I agree with you and the scientists more than any other. So in order to be the expert, it has to be science. So even Marx is using this scientific approach to history, yes. this idea that efficient causes can be used to dictate to, to predict the future. Yeah. Uh, you can apply it to anything, anywhere. Um, it's useful in some areas, extremely useful and being great benefits, but it, it is not universally applicable. That's the problem. Um, yeah. But as we said, our point about this does not rest upon being skeptical about the science. Yes. As we were saying earlier, we were make, we've been making these points, assuming that it might be the case that the science is true. Even if it's true, the answer is not world government. The answer is uh, human, the human person flourishing mm -hmm. and contributing to the common good. And if you say, well, what are the chances of that? That's the only one option we have. <laughs> and it's certainly better than world government, which uh, um, will, will destroy man, even if it saves the rest of the world. Which, yeah. But this is why, whether or, whether or not the science is true or, or not, and I happen to, to say, I happen to believe, I'll believe quite a bit of it, uh, it's the it's perfect for the Marxists. Yes, Marxists have basically taken over it. And real, the real a lot of the real climate scientists see this happening. They see this happening to the science that the real science has been taken over by what is an ideology of uh, of not analyzing the facts but using the facts for political ends. Yes, and uh, we trust in human ingenuity, which through God's grace. Mm -hmm. uh, allows us to work with nature for solutions from wherever we happen to be. Mm -hmm. The ultimate destiny of mankind to be in union with God in heaven anyway, when the last things come. Um, and it's not an end that we, we seek to bring about by bringing the destruction of all things. It's an end that we bring about by seeking the redemption of all things through Christ. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but all of those have their anti-Christian Marxist equivalent. Yes. And this is why it appeals to human nature so much. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I, anything to add? I, I think that we could end there. That seems a nice point to, to finish. That's a, yeah, that's a great point. Thank you for the great conversation, David. The only other thing, and this could be a whole other uh, conversation at another point, also with regards to economics. And it touches directly upon our question, why is Marxism attractive to Christians? Christians are also, uh, they also feel very suspicious or even threatened by the, the notion of the subjective theory of value. Ah, uh, yes. Which a yeah. lot of modern economic, all of, all of modern, a lot of modern economic thought, uh, 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 classical liberal economic thought is, is based around uh, uh, a subjective theory of value, certainly kind of coined by Karl, Karl Menger in, in 1871, the Austrian school of economics. Yes. Which are, now, Christians tend to be very suspicious of this because it it smacks of subjectivism. It smacks yeah. of almost nominalism. Um, and and I would insist in a lot of even the work that I'm doing in, in the intersection between th the theology and economics is showing how actually a subjective theory of economic value is completely Christian. Right. Now that's important because again, um, 
not only to many Marxists, I, 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 I don't know if it's fundamental to Marxism, but when you hear certainly in the popular presentation of economic theory, you hear the labor, is it the labor theory of value? The, the labor theory of value. And it was, yes. it, was, it was a constituent aspect of Marxist economic theory. Yeah. And, um, but also, as you say, many distributists seem to borrow this idea and um, are, have that suspicion. Yeah. Um, because because a, 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 lot, a lot of Christians are, like, like you said, we're trying, trying to espouse the dignity of the person, the dignity of, uh, of human nature. Uh, and the freedom of the human person to to work out his salvation, and then Christians will see in a labor theory of value a stress on the human on human work, an actual uh, a giving of dignity to human labor, um, as the source of economic value. And they think, well, well, human labor is value. John Paul II talked about the value of, of the value of the worker uh, of human labor. So isn't isn't human work isn't human labor the source? of economic value. Now the answer is of course complex. The answer is very complex, but ultimately the, the insight of modern economics, the insight of, of, of in, in classical liberal economics is that the, the insight is ultimately, ultimately that the human person, the human person is the, the center of value, but the human person himself through labor is not the source of economic value in the economy. It's not the source. Uh, this, but that's very hard. It's very hard for Christians to to understand without being without being very feeling very threatened by what by a looming nominalism or a looming subjectivism of value. Uh, it's this is a yes, and, and I mean this was a great revelation to me. If I use that phrase, was to discover this, um, and it wasn't until I came across people who were involved in Austrian, Austrian economics that I actually heard this explained, and then it made sense. That, that where I've come across a similar sort of barrier, and maybe this is the, this is the point at which we'll close, we, I think perhaps you're right, this is a subject that we can discuss in more detail later. Um, but it's fu funnily enough, I grappled with this first in the context of, the, of beauty, Mm -hmm. Beauty is an object. It's, it's it's a property of the thing that I'm perceiving. Yeah. But nevertheless, there is clearly a subjective element there as well, mm -hmm. and and one is in not in conflict with the with the other. That in some scenarios, the objective uh, beauty of something is clearly very important. Mm -hmm. But um, we have to take into account whether or not um, the. the or the fact that different people have different abilities to apprehend it, that will change their perception of, of whether or not they wish to buy a painting, for example. Um, and they're entitled to that point of view. You, you can't turn around and say, you, you must like this. Um, and so the, the, one, of my, one of the things that got me involved, actually in writing The Way of Beauty and so much of what I do, was that I felt that the traditionalist approach to um, dealing with beauty as a, as a concept was too focused on the objective quality of it and did not acknowledge sufficiently uh, personal taste and perception and saw the two as in conflict. Yeah. 
And so most of what, and I never found anybody really adequately describing. So what my, I wrote the book, The Way of Beauty. Really, that was my starting point. How do we deal with this? Because this is the, the big problem that um, exists today. And I, I think it's a similar thing going on in the context of economics and value, is that this sense that clearly there is some objective underlying value to the thing that we're buying. Mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, perception is vitally important as well. And it, it seems to me that the Austrians have, have worked out how to reconcile these two things um, and in the context of economics. And I, that's why, in some ways, I don't know, that, although they call it the subjective theory of value, I, I would rather it was described as, I don't know, subjective objective, because it's, it's not negating um, value as, as, as part of the property of what you have. It's, it's just okay. saying that the perception is an important aspect of this. Yeah, or just a truly human theory of value. Yes. And the truth, it's a good point, David, because no, in no other sphere does this manifest itself than in the world of art. We're certainly giving, how, how could we give, how could we, how could we put a value on a, on a painting or on a beauty? Certainly a price value. Yeah. And it's, tr it's clear that this, what this becomes, a, pr a price of a painting or something, it's, it would, would, be, would be the signal, signal to others of, of uh, the beauty that is perceived. Yes. That's the beauty. Um, yeah, but that's that's a whole other that's a whole other amazing <laughs> conversation about the import, uh, importance of the human person and economic value and all of this. Right. Well, we'll leave that for another day. It's been a fascinating discussion. I, I've enjoyed it very much, uh, and thank you for your time, Father Brad Elliott. Thank you, David. God bless you. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast: Conversations on Catholic Faith and Culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you are interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.